This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is sponsored by BT, because BT means business. BT knows that businesses come in many shapes, sizes and guises, from the person just starting out at their kitchen table to the biggest employer, which is why no matter what line of work you're in, they've got your back to help you succeed and do what you do best. No doubt connectivity is a must in Westminster, and it certainly helped us to get this episode created and distributed to you listening right now. BT already connects more than 1 million businesses and public sector organisations, offering secure and reliable connectivity. Nearly three quarters of people running a business or side hustle feel they couldn't do so without reliable broadband and mobile connectivity. That's why having connectivity you can count on is a must for business, whether it be facilitating multiple devices being connected at once or making team calls or guest Wi-Fi access for customers. BT's connectivity helps keep you and your customers happy. Whatever your business, BT's got your back. Search BT's got your back. This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is brought to you by Luton Rising, owners of London Luton Airport, the UK's most socially impactful airport. Find out more at lutonrising.org.uk. Hello and welcome to the Red Box Politics Podcast from The Times. I'm Matt Chorley. So much for 2020 being boring. Instead, we start the year wondering if the world is going to end in a ball of fire in Australia and World War III in the Middle East. Close to home with the excitement of a Labour leadership contest and whatever is the opposite of excitement of a Lib Dem leadership contest. And over the coming weeks and months, the way the government looks and operates is going to change dramatically, at least if Dominic Cummings gets his way. And that's the big question we want to address today. Is Whitehall broken? Do we need, is Dominic Cummings suggested in a blog last week, more weirdos and misfits in the corridors of power. Do we need to smash up Whitehall, merging some departments and breaking up others? Do we need, as Sajid Javid the Chancellor suggested this week, to move not just civil servants out of London, but ministers too? Can ministers really get things done, or does an army of Sir Humphreys from Yes Minister want to maintain the status quo? And, most importantly, why can't Dominic Cummings just get dressed properly? Uh, joining this week to discuss all of this and more, a former Sir Humphrey, a former Cabinet Minister and a former policy wonk. First of all, Gus O'Donnell, Lord O'Donnell, was Cabinet Secretary, the most senior civil servant in the land, under Tony Blair, Gordon Brown and David Cameron. Before that, he was Permanent Secretary at the Treasury and was Press Secretary to John Major as well. David Gork was a Conservative MP for more than 14 years, during which time he spent seven years at the Treasury before becoming Work and Pension Secretary and later Justice Secretary. He left the Commons in December after losing the Tory whip and standing unsuccessfully as an independent. And finally, Polly McKenzie helped write the 2010 Coalition Agreement and spent five years as Director of Policy to the Deputy Prime Minister, Nick Clegg. She's now the Chief Executive of the think tank Demos. Welcome to you all. Happy New Year. Are you all well? Happy New Year. You're all excited about this brave new world of a a majority government? Probably, presumably, David, you're slightly (laughs) less excited. (laughs) It's a very old experience, actually, but there we go. So, the exam question then, is Whitehall broken? Do we need to dramatically change the way that government works? Let's start with you, Gus. You oversaw, you were in charge of it. I think every government needs to realise that the situation's changing, you know, different uh, problems emerge and you need a flexible government, you need to make sure that your skills are up to date. Uh, you need to always keep looking for continuous improvement. So I don't think you can ever step back and say status quo is fine. I think the British civil service is, is pretty much the best in the world, but it's got a lot of things it could change, a lot of things could improve, and I would love to be in charge of doing those but people need to remember ministers make these calls i've tried to do changes before and had them blocked by by ministers i mean uh, one would be example david will know from treasury days 
The reward structure for civil servants is crazy, right? We, we basically pay them most when they leave after they've retired, right? The pension is really strong and the pay is terrible. And that balance should shift. Now, the reason we don't shift it is a really sad reason. It's because of the accounting rules mean that those unfunded pension liabilities don't show up in improving debt. So chancellors tend to be rather uninterested when you tell them. A bit like when I say to the chancellors very early on when I was in Treasury, why don't we put VAT on those top shelf magazines? And they were like, yeah, brilliant idea. This is before internet porn, you have to understand. And... (laughs) Then you have to explain to them, well, actually, it does involve newspapers as well. And curiously enough, you will understand this, Matt, suddenly they lose all interest. (laughs) Because we don't like the idea of VAT on newspapers, uh, Gus. Yeah, Yeah. indeed. Polly, what about you? Is Whitehall broken? Well, I can't believe we've got onto porn within like three minutes. (laughs) (laughs) But, uh, you know. I wanted to lower the tone, Polly, come on. I was going to talk about cerebral things like welfare reform. But no, no, let's talk about boobs. Never mind. So... Yeah, I mean, your question was, is Whitehall broken? I think the answer is no, but does it need to radically change? Yes, which is kind of what Gus was saying. It constantly needs to change. You know, technology is disrupting our economy, our politics, our society. You know, we've just been through an election where it's really clear that without trying to say that there's some conspiracy or that the election was stolen, I do not think that at all. The reality is our electoral law just isn't fit for purpose when it comes to just managing the way campaigning happens now, which is mostly online. That needs to be updated. The same is true of how we manage uh, how people interact with public services. You know, that's been moving online, but that creates new challenges for how do you reach the kind of people who are digitally excluded. Um I guess everywhere you look, things are changing. This question of how you how you regulate what conventionally were regulated industries and then some new things like the platform economy are massive. And because the, um, the, the, the technology sector says, you know, you move fast and break things. And that is precisely what government is bad at because government has to worry about everybody. Government moves slow and tries to fix things. Um, they're, they're a complete conflict, really. And that's why it's so hard to regulate that the growing parts of our economy. And, you know, that's just one of so many examples of where the skill set, the capabilities and the pay of civil servants needs to be kind of radically transformed. Well, my dear, what about your experience having been in the Cabinet? Well, I don't think it's, I don't think Whitehall is broken. I think we do have a strong civil service, but I, I mean, I, at the risk of group think I agree with the others in terms of the need. <laughs> We're not allowed group no, 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 no. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. Well, you allowed groupthink, I think, in the Parliamentary Conservative Party. But, uh, but, you are now. You are now. I stood up against groupthink. Then. <laughs> yeah. But in terms of the need to reform and the the challenges of new technology, as, as Polly has mentioned, uh, if you look at the opportunities that might exist for changing public services because of AI, um, I, mean, I think this is a point from the Dominic Cummings memo that I have some sort of sympathy with because you probably do need to drive that from the centre because I think there is always a tendency for any large organisation to keep the show on the road uh, and the civil service is very good at doing that and the country should be grateful for the civil service for keeping the show on the road in difficult circumstances but there is also a need to kind of look look at the horizon what is happening 20 years down the line how should public services for example be delivered when there could be radical changes to what technology could do and so I think a sort of push from the centre to try to ensure that as we deliver those public services as we 
you know, deliver what we have to deliver, then we take into account what opportunities are there and there is a, a, a willingness to look forward. That's not to say that the civil service don't do that. I mean, I would look at I was I was really you know, struck by my old department, the Ministry of Justice, you know, had got quite done a huge amount of work in terms of how will the justice system look like what would it look like in 10 15 years time how do we change things so that work happens but to raise its profile to raise its importance to sort of think the big thoughts then i think that is a laudable ambition Let's just talk a bit about how an idea does or doesn't become reality. So the, the cliche, I suppose, would be is poly radical policy wonk in number 10 comes up with great new whiz-bang idea, sells it to cabinet minister who is ready to go along with it, and then civil servant comes along and says, no, 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 minister, we won't be doing that. Is that a fair reflection of how things work? Gus is shaking his head. <laughs> Absolutely <laughs> not. And Polly says, I mean, yes, excellent. You, We've you broken think about, the group thing. I say sometimes. <laughs> you think about, you think about one, of the, one of the big innovations that's been recently in delivery of public services is all about the behavioural approach, right? nudging and all of that. Accepting the fact that we are dealing with humans, not robots, um, which is a problem with Dominic Cummings' approach. Yeah, I think. We'll come His on to AI, that, right? yeah. when you look at the articles he goes to in science, I mean, they're like going back 30, 40 years as if behavioural stuff never existed. They're building models based on perfectly rational individuals who never make mistakes and who are never impatient and like always save enough. It's like well, there's no need for much government then. Um, so, But the behavioural idea, brilliant one, came in with the coalition, um, being applied through tax, through pensions, made massive difference. Civil servants love it. I mean, it's it's for once actually starting to deal with humanity and you know the problems that public services are dealing with disadvantaged people who are making possibly wrong decisions for their future and helping them through periods when they're they're you know the system is against them and this was things like actually quite cheap things reworking oh, the wording cheap. of tax letters or well that's the kind of small one that everybody uses and it drives me mad because <laughs> the point about the tax letter was to say our communications with the public need to understand the way the public yeah. looks at things. So if you look at, say, when you get your insurance, your car insurance renewal letter, it says, the, you know, here's the, here's the amount to renew. And you think, oh, OK. And, or your credit card at the bottom line, you know, here's how much you should pay minimum. And so that primes you to pay those amounts, whereas in fact what you should be saying and what the regulations now require the insurance, car insurance companies to do is say what your premium was last year. So you go, oh, blimey, they put it up. Yeah. Why would I do that? Go on a search engine, find exactly the same product for a lot less, like hundreds less. So, yes, and the default, the biggest one, the default on savings, auto-enrolment on pensions, has saved the taxpayer billions in terms of tax reliefs that we were using, which were, in you know classic economic model terms, should have influenced savings decisions, but didn't. But it wasn't working. No, so, Polly, you said no. Inertia. You said it did sound... When I, I, I sketched out yeah, the possibility yeah. that the civil service might sometimes stop good ideas. The behavioural insights team is that Gus is talking about. A really fascinating example of where, where it did work, partly because of a genuinely brilliant person, David Halpern, who was mm. uh, brought in from the Institute for Government to, to help set that up. Because in order to get the civil service to switch how they made policy and how they did policy design, you needed to create a really strong disruptive force, a group of brilliant people who could go in, who could talk to people, who could uh, create uh, acronyms. They had Mindspace and now I think the other, it, it's called, it's like something like Easy or something. Easy. Yeah. They, they decided to make it easier because Mindspace was too, anyway, whatever. <laughs> Behavioural insights. Really fascinating fascinating but also really difficult 
even now, so at my GP surgery, if I if when you have an appointment, they send you a message that says something like 200 people miss a GP appointment every week, which the behavioural insights would tell you is exactly the wrong thing to do, because what's that doing is normalising being the bad guy. I was at Halfords last night and they have something which which tells you about the people who do bring their bike in for servicing, saying, be one of the good guys. Uh, and that, that works, right? So somehow this private sector organisation has absorbed the learnings from behavioural insights. The public sector is still struggling because it's really, really hard. It takes ages and ages to get those messages right down to the front line and they so often get lost in translation. The challenge for the civil service is to accept these big disruptive forces that need big amounts of money. I think so often the desire is to say, oh yeah, we've we've done that with something with something kind of little. We've made a small change mm. instead of recognizing and ministers are at fault here, that it takes at least 10 years really to change those structural things. Uh, uh, the ministers get bored. They're too they're, they're looking for the next the next announcement, the next good idea. But it is true that good ideas can get blocked. Or, or lost. I, I mean, is it possible that actually it turned out to be a bad idea? Oh, of course. <laughs> There's loads of bad ideas, yeah. right? Um, actually, one of the one of the really sensible things in Dom's blog is where he says that most things that look like bad ideas are bad ideas, and he's right about that. And being able to differentiate the things that are good ideas disguised as bad ideas is a real mm. challenge. But you know, civil servants do bad ideas for a decade just as much as madcap special advisors do but i remember the fight about um trying to reintroduce exit checks and and it was a political this is people uh, right so for, for people as well as just checking people to come into the country we exactly, check them we count them out leave, right yeah. counting people out as well as in which thatcher actually had abolished for like uh, f- for efficiency reasons so keeping a whole bunch of paper um and, and tracking people seemed like a waste of time in an open liberal economy. Immigration had become incredibly difficult and toxic. And part of the story of better immigration had to be about checking people in and out so that you actually had a better idea of who was in the country. And the challenge was trying to get the Home Office and the and the civil servants responsible to understand that we wanted something that was different from what the previous government had wanted, which was this e-borders system. And that was fine, but we actually wanted something that was different and better. It took years and years and so many meetings to re-correct them and say, no, but that isn't what we wanted. That isn't what we wanted. And and Ministry of Justice, I remember when my first weeks in government, we had written in the coalition agreement, we wish to extend freedom of information, right? Those were the words, extend freedom of information. Went for my first meeting with the justice officials to talk about what that might mean. And they had a 20-page set of proposals that had to limit freedom of information because they just <laughs> assume that that's what we want because that's what ministers always want I'm like have you read these words no go away walked out of the meeting made them come back didn't work in the end because quite quickly the conservative ministers decided that they in fact did want to limit freedom of information so, they knew what the ministers really wanted as opposed to what they put in an agreement yeah indeed but you know hey ho but the, um, that but is one of the problems it is one of the problems but it, it does require you to as a civil servant be able to think that it, it's possible that they want something different and you, and you need to be able to design that's why it's why think tanks exist they have a really important role in the ecosystem to design challenging things that are perhaps counterintuitive or weird or disruptive and also why uh, under the coalition we introduced this contestable policy fund to allow ministers to get policy advice from outside Whitehall yeah. that was then closed down which I think was a mistake and what's your experience today I mean actually one of the things you had a long time in the treasury albeit in slightly different jobs but then you had very short spells at two other departments working pensions and then 
justice. What can you do if you're not in a department for several years? Do you sort of go for quick wins, just keep the show on the road? That's the temptation. I think I was fortunate in having... I had six years doing one job, which was the Minister for Tax. And that's a very complicated, very technical role. And I also had a fair degree of, of job security, if you like, because... I mean, I worked for George Osborne. George was very clear that he wanted me to stay there as long as, you know, I was happy to be there. And so I was able to think about a few things that took years to deliver. And you could see things through, which was great, really, really satisfying. Then when I moved on to other departments... I mean, it was during a fairly precarious, uh, <laughs> fragile period for anyone's career, and you never knew how long you had. But then that gives you a certain degree of sort of impetus to kind of get a move on, if you like, be prepared to take a few more risks. So when I was doing the HMRC job, if you like, the tax job, I was able to you know, look at various tax reforms that would take some years to deliver, ways and work with HMRC as to the way the tax system was administered. But when I was at the MOJ, I was, if you like, in a hurry to try and shift the debate on, for example, short sentences, prepared to take a few risks, recognising that I might not be around to see through the implementation, but at least that was a chance to move the debate on. So that that also had its appeal. Yeah. But it, it is frustrating that you can't then see the policy followed through and all the stages delivered. And, you know, it would have been great to have had the opportunity to take, a, say, a sentencing bill through and, 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 and so on. Well, that was the other problem you had, is it with no majority... You couldn't do any legislation, even if you... Well, I think this is a really important point. When people talk about, oh, you know, the the problems that we haven't solved as a country and then say it was the civil service fault or the way that Whitehall works, you know, remember the last few years, the country's not had any money, so there's been no money to sort of you know, to throw around on various things to try and soften reforms. It also means that the capacity of uh, the civil service has been reduced. And secondly, we haven't had large parliamentary majorities. So that makes it very difficult to undertake big reforms in this area. Then throw in the huge amount of effort taken up by Brexit. And, yeah, that's why there are quite a lot of difficulties, I think, in terms of, you know, unresolved problems that are not fundamentally down to the civil service. I agree with all that's been said, that there are things that can be done to improve and, you know, to move the civil service in a sort of faster direction. But, but you know, those have been a lot of the problems. And in defence of the civil service, there are a lot of bad ideas that get floated around. And people with experience and indeed the confidence to say, um, sorry, Minister, but, you know, this is what happens here. <laughs> this is a stinker. This is a stinker. Or this is, yeah, you are going to run into these parliamentary problems or this is going to cost you a lot of money. And, and you know, in truth, some of the things, you know, for example, some of the NHS reforms that happened during the coalition government, you know, it was actually a failure of somebody to say, no, this is actually is a bad idea. So, so stopping bad ideas is a really, really important part of what the civil service has to do. Civil service do occasionally have their own bad ideas. (laughs) Again, really early on, this right around, you know, when a department wants to do something, has to write to all the other departments to ask for permission. Something came out of the Ministry of Justice basically proposing that we've run out of space in cemeteries, so we need to, like, dig everyone up to make space. And it clearly, (laughs) clearly politically foolish, shall we say, 
but it seemed to me that this this is a sort of one of those problems that the bureaucrats know about that they present to ministers every time there's a new minister in desperate hope they'll get it through when they're not paying attention. Just like BET or newspapers, yeah, yeah. Um, and uh, pasties. I mean, the the, the pasties. yes, no, that, was pasties. Yeah, that was an excellent proposal. Yeah, um, I was on maternity leave, so it wasn't my fault. <laughs> uh, well, I, I was I was a minister for tax, so maybe <laughs> yeah, it, maybe it was. I think it was. Yes, it was your fault. Excellent. I want to move on in a sec to talk about Dominic Cummings specifically what the government is planning to do. We'll be back after this short break. This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is brought to you by Luton Rising, owners of London Luton Airport, the UK's most socially impactful airport. Find out more at lutonrising.org.uk. Welcome back. You're listening to the Red Box Podcast with me, Matt Jolly, joined in the studio by David Gork, Polly McKenzie and Gus O'Donnell. So let's talk about what the government is planning to do. There are lots of sort of signs and noises off and all that. Dominic Cummings' blog, the one that sort of set all this off, talking about a lack of cognitive diversity in Whitehall, more weirdos and misfits when needed, he said, more mathematicians, data scientists. Gus, you touched on this slightly. He's trying to treat running a country of 60 million people like running a spreadsheet or a financial market or something and yeah. people are less predictable than that first and foremost if you're going to reform government you need to accept the fact that the prime minister leads, needs to lead the way right not not a special advisor the prime minister so the references in the blog to the prime minister are non-existent that for me is a real problem right secondly it is government is about a, a joint effort from ministers advised by special advisors with the civil service giving advice and implementation and all the rest of it. You've got to look at all of those things together. As David said, one of the crucial things that civil servants would really want is ministers to stay in place for longer. Yeah. Coalition as a byproduct gave us that and it was fantastic. David has a fantastic reputation at, uh, at Treasury, I can tell you. And well, group that's, think again. that's hard <laughs> to get, I can tell you. But ministers <laughs> that stay around for a long time uh, really get it. Um, in terms of getting in weirdos, you know, there's plenty of weirdos. I was employed as a weirdo to start with because my background was econometrics and stuff like that. I'd been an academic. I'm very happy with have the you idea. E- have you emailed doms, you know, weirdos at gmail.com or whatever it was? That I, it, I think I, you I, his diversity criteria would probably rule me out. <laughs> uh, someone with experience of the civil service, <laughs> you know, all those sorts of things. Um, I mean, the other thing that struck me is, that, I mean, aside from the weirdos and misfits, quite a lot of the people he was talking about, data scientists, mathematicians, policy mm. experts, there are quite a lot of them there already in the civil service. But not enough, because part of our problem is pay. Yeah. God bless the coalition. You remember, mm. these wonderful ministers. You can't pay anyone more than the prime minister. Yeah. Bloody stupid, uh, <laughs> if you'll excuse the phrase. So there are all sorts of idiotic restrictions imposed. Yes, we need to get in really bright new people uh, with a diverse range of views. Cognitive diversity, massively important. I think Dominic Cummings massively underplays the other aspects of diversity. You know, he's oh, not bothered about gender or ethnicity diversity. Well, I think the civil service should be. I think it's important you're representative of society. So I think that's a big Geographical, minus. I mean, given that Geographical we are all now... Geographical diversity is... We're all abs- northern now. But I mean, actually, the... <laughs> The, the so, London Southeast dominance of so, particularly higher well, levels. Of the high, yeah, let's be clear 80% of civil servants are not in London, yeah. right? So, facts, you know, he's, evidence is really important. Now, what I worry about with Dominic is he wants real diversity of people to come in who all believe in him. And in fact, <laughs> if they don't, 
and they don't fit in within the first few weeks, he's going to kick them out. And he's said that in advance. So, yes, for diversity, but it, it very easily turns into a behavioural thing, confirmation bias. Here's the things I believe. I want people that believe what I believe. I don't want someone to come in and say, I disagree with you. And the civil service's job, more than anything else, is to challenge. And to some of the examples Polly gave, the really important thing there was if people are very clear about the outcomes they want, not the process or the task, but the outcome, then you can have a really useful and important debate about the right ways of achieving that outcome. Polly, please the, don't go in with a set of tasks. <laughs> Polly, one of the things it strikes me looking at, um, and we touched on this in our New Year episode, mm. Dominic Cummings, scruffy, overexcitable, full of ideas, can't get dressed properly, sort of <laughs> arrives in number 10, promises to smash things up. Steve Hilton did exactly yeah. the same thing. Who you shared an office with yeah, in so Downing Street. Steve Bannon in America is a similar, can't get yeah. dressed properly, wanted to smash everything <laughs> up, got frustrated and leaves within a year or two. Yeah, people who, who value chaos, I think, as, as a virtue because, it, because of its disruptive power, when I actually think forceful people who push things through are, have much more power than just chaos itself. I think Steve and... Dom are similar in some ways, but but very different because Dominic actually had a much much more staying power. Steve would get bored and move on to the next thing after about three minutes, and <laughs> uh, and uh, you know actually if you look at what they tried to achieve within DFE, they they did a couple of things. First of all, they 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 acted quickly to legislate and then and had a staged plan over multiple years to drive this. Uh, this change in the education system to bring about academies and free schools. They also hired in excellent people as policy advisors who were experts, not particularly party uh, affiliated. Uh, Sam Friedman, Tim Leunig were brought in as as kind of catalysts for change around the minister's office. And I think that was incredibly powerful as well, even though there's plenty of the holes you might pick in the education reforms some of it was really excellent and and pushed through steve would never have done that steve thought if he'd written it in the prime minister's speech it was kind of done and you'd just move <laughs> on i remember being sort of surprised that we um uh, there was this the na national officer had a real go at the program in the end but this desire to help troubled families right a great ambition let's find the most the hundred thousand most difficult struggling families and get real concerted help to them uh, and Steve's vision of it was that you just sort of have a room with all the different families' names uh, on the walls, on like whiteboards, and you'd slowly just go around and tick them off and fix them. Um, <laughs> turns out it's a bit more complicated than that. And actually driving the change at local authority level, really, really difficult, difficult to get. Uh, basically didn't work, just wasted a lot of money. But having good ideas, as Gus says, doesn't necessarily mean that you've got the process right and because Steve was incapable of listening to that civil service challenge, OK, look, this is your goal, help these families, this is how to do it, it just it, it didn't go anywhere. And you need evaluation. I mean, yeah. that's the other thing. that, that you, It's very hard to get ministers to agree on serious evaluation of, of projects. You yeah. know, free schools, we could come back to. Really? Yeah. Free schools made a difference? Where's the evaluation? And by evaluation, you mean that you make an announcement, it might happen, but then you move on to the other thing. You never stop to think, was it? Well, and it and you, never, you never start to think, so, so let's look at the evidence yeah. base for why this might work and then say, OK, so we are going to do a test. We're going to try some free schools. And we're going to see if they improve educational outcomes in the area, not just by looking at what the free schools do, but whether they improve educational outcomes in that whole area. I agree with that, but sometimes ministers want to do things for reasons that are not 
easily analysed by data. I remember we were trying to develop a proposal for a young person's bus pass. A bunch of transport economists came back to say this was an inefficient thing to do. Like, But hang on, we didn't tell you what the goal was. The goal was to make buses free. It's a really efficient way to make buses free for young people. But they were like, oh, well, they analysed the impact on the number of bus journeys. They decided that that was the outcome that we wanted and told us it failed their test. And so sometimes civil servants can't understand the political desire. I want to give something free to young people. Now, maybe politicians shouldn't do that. Every time you give something free, you know, you can never take it back. No. No, Winter uh, fuel allowance. I mean, tuition oh fees, for example. Yeah. David, is that mm. part of the problem? Actually, sort of bringing this all together, that, that you can't separate policy wonkishness from politics. There are loads of probably very sensible ideas. Giles Wilkes, who's a former special advisor, written a great piece of prospect where he goes through a whole load of things. Winter fuel allowance for wealthy pensioners, you know, the freeze on fuel, a whole load of things which logic might tell you you should stop doing. But you don't stop doing it because politically it would be seen as a as a daft thing to do. Yeah, I, I, I thought Giles' piece was excellent and I agreed with all of it and I've been involved in some of the battles trying to move towards <laughs> what I think is a more rational approach. But you know, politics and, and government, it is an art, it's not a science. And I agree with Gus's points that you, you know, there's no way you just sort of have a formula and you can therefore work out how everyone's going to behave and you can solve all your problems. So it's a, I mean, it's a very unconservative way of looking at, at government and society. And you are constantly trying to well strike trade-offs and, and politics and, and policy is all about trade-offs and you can't have your cake and eat it and you know sometimes you want to do something that might be you know, rational good use of taxpayers money but it will be unpopular now maybe the answer is we've got a majority of 80 uh, there's no general election for a while this government is going to take on some of those difficult issues that you know I wish we'd been able to deal with over the nine years I was a minister but I'm, you know, I'd like to see the evidence for that. There's no real sign. Yeah, that not doesn't seem to be where Dominic Cummings is talking about, and that we're going to, you know, do some of these things and be politically brave and solve some of those problems. Maybe, maybe I'm being unfair and not do, giving him due credit. But that that's where the real challenge is, isn't that there's a there's a magic solution that's lying there, and if only we had politicians and officials and spads who were just a bit cleverer, we'd discover these solutions. It's just that it's really hard. Oh, it's quite really often, difficult. Quite often, I think Charles makes this point. Quite often, the solution exists. It's the lack of political will or the yeah. or the capacity. It happen all the time, yeah, yeah. all the time. I mean, you know, I, I realised after a while that the sort of job of the minister is, is is essentially to be the sort of the interface between what is the the sort of sensible, rational thing to do and what the public will wear. And you've got to kind of make a, you've got to try and find the way through that. But this is another thing the civil service actually isn't particularly good at: is that consultation tends to be. I've got this idea. What do you think about it? rather than a deliberative engagement with the public around this is a problem, how can we build a publicly sustainable solution to it? And whether that is around social care or uh, climate change or taxation, I, I think we actually have to take some of that policy formulation away from the civil service and do it in, in, in collaboration with citizens themselves. And that's how you navigate that, that dilemma. Mm -hmm. Well, it's fascinating. I'm so pleased that we've managed to unpick some of this, and I hope that um, listeners have learned something. Unfortunately, we've run out of time. My huge thanks to David Gork, Polly McKenzie, and Gus O'Donnell. Don't forget to subscribe to the podcast on Apple, Spotify, Acast, or wherever you listen, and sign up to my morning email at thetimes.co.uk forward slash redbox. But for now, for me, Matt Cholly, it's goodbye.
This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is brought to you by Luton Rising, owners of London Luton Airport, the UK's most socially impactful airport. Find out more at lutonrising.org.uk. Summer's just around the corner, so give your body the care it deserves with Osea's best-selling Andaria Algae Body Oil. Created by infusing Andaria seaweed in barrels of botanical oils, it leaves skin silky soft and glowing. Plus, it's clinically proven to improve elasticity and deeply moisturize without feeling greasy. It's safe, clean, vegan skincare. Get 10% off your first order at oseamalibu.com with code GLOW, plus free shipping on orders over $60.